0: the next trip podcast with aviation insiders Doug and Drew. Together with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other avgeeks geeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about
1: all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own. Good day and welcome to Boarding Pass 222, operating on February 26, 2024. This is Drew, an airline ops manager and aspiring Cessna 172 pilot. The weather's good today, Doug, so I might actually get to fly in a couple hours. And I'm here with my buddy, Doug, an airline pilot. We're here to discuss aviation topics from an industry insider's perspective. Welcome back from Hong Kong. I think I'm so confused. You were, uh, you may have done some. Peg- you did do some Pegasus 767 flying after, but do you want to talk about Hong Kong first? You've had a few things go on this week.
0: Yeah, we can talk about that in a second. I just want to talk about the Cessna 172 that you just mentioned. Yeah. It's seven o'clock in the morning for you, mm-hmm. which means it's four o'clock in the morning for me because you have flight training. Mm-hmm. You have flight training mm-hmm. coming up. I don't think the listeners quite understand <laughs> or challenges. appreciate the challenges of our scheduling. I got up at four o'clock in the morning on the West Coast mm-hmm. so that we could squeeze this in before you go fly your Cessna 172. We didn't do it yesterday yeah. because I was flying the Pegasus right. yesterday. That's where we're at scheduling-wise well, these I w- days. Yeah,
1: we cannot have a standard day that we tape because of your schedule and sometimes my schedule. I will. I, I would like to um, impress upon people that we taped from different, different locations which were not either of our homes a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just trying to figure out what time it is for me and you and what date it is in Hong Kong and Jacksonville. I think you were in North Carolina.
0: It's not easy, but we love doing it. We're not complaining. We're, we're just we might be a little bit tired this morning. That's all we're saying.
1: We might be a little bit tired and it's not difficult for us because what you're hearing is stuff that we just text about during the week. So it's not like we have to dig up something. It's just stuff that we've already talked about and we we take the time to get some more information so this show can be entertaining and educational. So Mostly entertaining. If you get something out of it, that's awesome. <laughs> but we just want we want to occupy your time, you know, on your drive to uh, the Network Op Center in Chicago or the Dallas Operations Center if you work for American. You know, wherever you're sitting in traffic, let us keep you company. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Alright, you asked about Hong Kong. Last time we talked, I still didn't know where I was going. As soon as I got off the recording, I checked, and yeah, it was a Hong Kong trip. I actually hadn't been there since you and I went and did Checkerboard Hill Mm -hmm. and walked around and all that. When I got there, I just kept thinking to myself, like, "Oh, Drew and Ian were literally just here. Right? Yeah, we missed each other. A week or two weeks prior. Uh Yeah, we had just missed each other again. The weather was fantastic. It was probably mid-70s, partly partly overcast. Mm -hmm. Drew, the food, I, oh man, I love the food in Hong Kong. It's so good, those noodles. They do the best
1: noodles ever. You know, those Hong Kong pan fried noodles. What's funny, we talked about, you know, a couple years ago about Hong Kong being dead as a city for, as a crossroads, especially the airport was basically shut down. But now you, me, Ian, between us, we've been there multiple times to Hong Kong. So it's turning around?
0: Yes, that that is what I was going to say. The waterfront, you know, the walkway along the waterfront, there's that Ferris wheel that's that's right on the water. What I remember from when I was there about 15 years ago is that waterfront was packed with tourists. I was one of the only Caucasian people that I saw my entire time in Hong Kong. I think tourism still is not back. Yeah. We we stay in the Wan Chai area. That's right. where our hotel is. Walking on some of those overpasses, anyone who's been to Hong Kong knows what I'm talking about, where you don't actually have to walk on street level. There are these overpasses, pedestrian-only overpasses. They were jam-packed, but it was all locals. All locals. All locals. I still have not seen a lot of tourists. To be honest, I don't know where they are, because there are all these flights going in and out of Hong Kong. Do you? But I'm, I'm just not seeing them the way that I used to. Yeah,
1: it is weird, because... Do you remember when we walked to Checkerboard Hill? It was like a two or three mile walk on the other side, on the Kowloon side, right? Yes. I don't think we saw any um, non-Chinese people. I don't know; they may yeah. have been mainland, from mainland China, but they all seemed like locals except for us. It's it was the
0: same thing on Hong Kong Island this time, and in places where you you normally would or you feel like you would be seeing tourists, right? I just didn't. They're just. I I think that they're just not back yet. I think that a lot of the flights are people who are returning to Hong Kong who yeah. have been gone since the pandemic or have family there. So there is a lot of demand, but I think that it's mainly probably just local or people with family and the tourism still has yet to to catch up regain traction.
1: Yeah, it's uh, disappointing because it is a very user-friendly city for tourists. It's very easy to navigate. You can use your credit card all over the place. You know, now when I'm going to Asia, I'm really considering that as a crossroads or a connection point for me because Singapore is further south. Hong Kong is actually more convenient. Like if I'm going to Sri Lanka, Hong Kong is actually a shorter go to Hong Kong and then go to to Colombo from there is actually shorter than going all the way south to Singapore. So anyway, we wish them well. I feel like we have a connection to Hong Kong now. Maybe that's why we're like rooting for them. Because the people are definitely, the people are great. Hong Kong has always been
0: one of my favorite cities in the world. And every time I go back there, I'm just reminded of why I like it so much. Yeah. Yes, of course, the food. But it's just such, it's a beautiful city. Yeah. It's nestled right there on the water. The weather is almost always excellent. It's just, it, it is such a fantastic city. I hope that the tourism starts to rebound sometime soon.
1: Yeah. Oh, now that um, we're talking about Hong Kong, I went to uh, the Chicago, um, went went to the conference for our company for airport operations. And they were talking about the airline. And they put up a route map of Pan Am, a Pan Am route map from the 70s. It was impressive. They had all, all these flights over the Pacific, all these flights over the Atlantic. And then they showed our company route map today. It's very similar. And you know, we've talked about this before that flight that you flew from Hong Kong to to San Francisco, was originally flown by a 747-200 or a 747-100 of Pan Am. And we're just, we're basically that legacy of Pan Am. And that's how, when we moved to this country, that is a flight that brought me, my mom, and my brother and sister to San Francisco. I can't remember what flight it was back then, but it was one of those signature one of those premium flights that the airlines would boast about
0: we've talked about the London flight being Pan Am flight, flight one. one I was not alive in the 70s I was not around for the Pan Am era I'm you, you talk about legacy flights yeah and looking back historically we, we have these grand ideas of oh the Pan Am flight to London that must have been spectacular yeah but if you think about it if you're in the US and you see a Pan Am plane uh-huh. that's kind of a dime a dozen if you're on one of the coastal cities yeah if you're international if you are in hong kong right and the one pan am flight a day comes in that to me it feels like avgeeks back then that was probably like the one a380 that comes into some airport Mm -hmm. but without flight radar 24 (laughs) you can't track it you just have to look at the timetable and know what time it's supposed to come in yeah yeah where it's it's that excitement of like, oh, the, the, the Pan Am flight is coming in soon.
1: Well, can you imagine when Pan Am started flying the 747 nonstop to Hong Kong from San Francisco? It's exactly what you were saying. AvGeeks were up there on that lookout area at uh, Hong Kong at Kai Tak Airport waiting for that. And it's the same as a kid who's waiting for an A380 to land. I'll talk about the conference a little bit more, but they were talking about Pan Am and then they talked about our airline and how it kind of mimics that. They asked, is there anyone here who worked for Pan Am? And Doug, out of 400 people, there were about five people at the conference that worked for Pan Am. (laughs) So we have some of that legacy still working for us, which is so cool.
0: Yeah, one of my sim instructors that I worked with um, when I was on the KC-10 had been a Pan Am pilot Mm -hmm. way back in the 70s and the 80s. It's the the legacy is definitely still out there,
1: right? And I think um, I've said this on a previous episode. They were first class all the way to the end. So they declared bankruptcy in the nineties, early nineties, and their ops frequency would bleed into ours. I was working at Express in ops, and you would hear the Pan Am flight two would land from London. They would talk to their ops, and ops would be like, "All right, the crew is staying. The pilots are staying at the Clift." And flight attendants are stay- staying at, uh, I can't remember the other hotel, but these were like the best hotels in San Francisco. So up until the end, right, up until they shut down, they were first class. They were not staying at the Days Inn, right? Maybe maybe that's part of the reason why they <laughs> <Yeah>. shut down. <laughs> maybe.
0: <laughs> no, there are a lot of, a lot more reasons. But...
1: All right, tell me about, now back to uh, the Pegasus. You were excited because you were finally going to get some actual landings in where you were you were actually flying the plane were you able to do that
0: uh no well i got one (laughs) we showed up yesterday morning and we were looking through the notams and there was a presidential tfr president biden was in san francisco tfr is temporary flight restriction anytime the president goes anywhere they put this big ring many many miles away from where he's at that has restricted airspace even
1: for military traffic even for other
0: military traffic Yes, even for other wow. military traffic. It it affects everyone. There's this presidential TFR that's out there. Now, normally it wouldn't be an issue. We would just come back to the base, and then we could just fly visual patterns, and we're not really impacting this TFR. The clouds were low yesterday, mm-hmm. which meant that we had to do only instrument approaches and uh, touch-and-go. Like, it, was, it was good enough that we could do a touch-and-go, but then we had to take back off and go back into the long instrument approach. I think that part of the problem was ATC was just slammed. They were monitoring all the other traffic going into and out of the TFR. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't, if there's a TFR, it doesn't mean that you are not allowed to fly into it at all. But Mm. you need special permissions, you need special communication. Air traffic control was just busy because they were monitoring all these other airplanes. And here's this KC-46 it's just trying to beat up the pattern. Right. And finally they were like, okay, no, you guys, you need to be done. You can't where do this was, anymore. Where
1: was Air Force One landing?
0: Was it at sfo I don't know. Uh, to oh. be honest, I haven't seen anything. So I'm they not you sure. They normally
1: go to Moffett Field, I think, just south of SFO.
0: A lot of times what they do, because uh, first of all, it's really costly to park an airplane, e- even for the government to park an airplane for extended amounts of times at large airports. So a lot of times what VIP transport, not just the, the U.S. president, but other world leaders or politicians or whoever, they'll yeah. land at the at whatever the closest international or major airport is to the event that they're going to, and then that plane will take off again and go mm, to a go to smaller, cheaper. Yeah. cheaper, less mm-hmm. busy in yep. the same area. So yes, yeah. they, sometimes they do <laughs> go to Moffat, but they f- land at San Francisco, right. unload, take off, go sit at Moffat. And then when it's time to leave, they just position back to San Francisco or whatever airport they're at.
1: And sometimes they fly hundreds of miles away. So when they're when there's the um, the United Nations meeting in New York, a lot of those white bodies, a lot of those government VIP transports fly down to Dulles and use our airport as a parking lot so far away from New York.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty crazy.
1: All right. So you got one landing?
0: uh unfortunately i got two takeoffs cuz i i got the initial takeoff and mm-hmm. then i i got a touch and go i i got one landing but let's just say it, it wet my appetite to mm-hmm. go fly more often
1: right <laughs> yeah. i will hopefully get multiple landings today and hopefully today is the day i finally get it where i ease that 172 down and it's not like two landings I ha- actually you know i have not bounced it yet it's been i've been sticking the landing it hasn't been smooth but I have not bounced it yet. All right, so we have a lot of stuff to talk I thought this was going to be a short episode, but uh, yeah. we have, <laughs> regarding the Chicago conference for the company, one more thing to mention. We have some listeners at our company that work in airport ops and network ops. So shout out to Mike in Chicago. He's considering being on the show. He said, maybe when we're doing our prep for the summer. Mike is the one who's uh, the director who's like, uh, we're going to run it hard while everyone else is asking for a schedule reduction during a massive <laughs> snowstorm. He's like, no, we're going to run it hard. <laughs> I love it. Chad from NOC. Uh, he is normally an NOC director. He listens to us. And Chad will do the call. Like, I'm the shift manager for Dulles. And I'll do a call with all the departments. He does a call at 930 in the morning and 10 o'clock at night. And he hosts that call. He's like the shift manager of the whole airline. So he has all of us. On that call, t- talking for each hub and each um, for dispatch and for flight ops, all that. He will mention, and today is the 40th anniversary of the first flight of the 757, which I love. Yeah, that's <laughs> I'll do awesome. a thumbs up. I don't think anyone, else, many people on the call care because they're not AV geeks. I don't care if it's National Donut Day. I don't <laughs> care if it's pizza. you know, he's actually talking about stuff that's important <laughs> to us. So, Chad. You know, Chad says he has a ninety minute drive, so Chad thank keep keep mentioning that because it is appreciated by at least one person on the call. <laughs> <laughs> a few weeks ago we talked about tailwinds over the Pacific propelling airliners at record speeds. This week El Nino is giving North Atlantic flights a boost. Who are the speed racers this time, Doug?
0: Yeah, this is amazing. I was in Hong Kong when this happened and you sent me the message. There was a Virgin Atlantic flight from Dulles to Heathrow that reached 802 miles per hour, and it arrived 45 minutes early. The United 64, which was from Newark to Lisbon, flew at 838 miles per hour. And the winner was an American flight from Philly to Doha, which clocked 840 miles an hour. I think that On might February, be the fastest.
1: That might it, be the fastest recorded. 840. It could be.
0: On February 17th, the National Weather Service weather balloon launch detected the second strongest upper-level wind recorded in local history, going back to the mid-20th century. This is between thirty-four and 35,000 feet, and the winds peaked at 230 knots or 264 miles per hour.
1: Yeah, I would say this is awesome because people are getting there early, but uh, I will also say if I forked out thousands of dollars for a business class seat and my flight time is getting cut in one hour... I would feel like I was shorted as an Avgeek if my flight to Lisbon is five and a half hours versus yes, six.
0: A, hours. As as Avgeeks, I think that we all <laughs> feel that way. But I think that most of the people who shell out this money for those seats are actually happy that they're getting in early because they have important business meetings or things to right? go to. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's amazing, Doug. And normally those speeds would break the speed of sound, which is around 767 miles per hour. The Concorde had a cruising speed of 1,350 miles per hour, but none of these flights actually broke the sound barrier, because if you take the plane's speeds and subtract the tailwind, that that would be lower than 767 miles per hour, just as an example. Tailwinds, which you just mentioned, were as high as 260 miles per hour. So, If we take American 120, Philadelphia to Doha, 840 minus 265. So you really get a speed against the wind of 575 miles per hour, which of course is less than the speed of sound. How was it over the Pacific? Were you still getting tailwinds coming back home?
0: No, uh, actually, we got to Hong Kong an hour early, an hour earlier than what we were planned. We we did Mm -hmm. not have the headwinds, which we knew then on the return flight meant that we wouldn't have the tailwinds. And I know we've talked about it many times about how flight planning software is able to look at all the predicted winds and and you might fly 500 miles farther than the Great Circle route or 1,000 miles farther than the Great Circle route, but that might actually save you time because the the software is able to look and see where when you're going into the wind, you can save time by staying away from some of those headwinds. And then on the flip side, where you can use some of these massive tailwinds that that are happening to be able to actually save time going with the wind this this whole thing made me laugh because the Mm -hmm. the reactions on social media from people who Mm -hmm. don't quite understand the aerodynamics of it i was reading things that were saying like oh no this is fake news there's absolutely no way airplanes can't fly that fast like uh 787 can't break the sound barrier what people and uh, i know most of our listeners understand this but what the general population doesn't understand when they read articles like this, is the airplane is moving no faster through the physical air that it is hitting yeah. than it does normally. It's, right. it's that river. We, I, I know I've used the example of you're in a boat going down a river, mm-hmm. you're moving faster against the shore than you right. would be if you turn around and you're, you're going upstream. But the speed that you were moving against the water in front of you doesn't change. It's it's just a relative motion compared mm-hmm. to the shore. Same thing with this. The airplanes are not actually physically flying faster through the air. They're just getting that push across the ground.
1: So against the air, they're still going at basically the same speeds, about 600 miles per hour.
0: Yeah, w- which is why we use either indicated airspeed or Mach. And I know that we've talked about doing this as an ops topic, talking about the different speeds, because there's true airspeed, indicated mm-hmm. airspeed, lots of Different types of speeds that we can talk about, yeah. but ultimately, air is a molecule, and you can. There, there's only so fast that you can move those molecules out of the way. Which basically, and I, I know that we have at least one listener in the Los Angeles area. <laughs> He's probably going to correct me on my yeah. explanation here, but there's only only so fast that these airplanes can actually move through those molecules. That's what happened here. Is they're getting that push from behind, but they're still probably only flying Mach 84, Mach 83, which is 85%, 84% of the speed of sound.
1: Yeah. And they're using probably the same amount of fuel. They're getting there faster. So that is some fuel savings with that push.
0: Speaking of North Atlantic flights, we have some good news for passengers needing to travel from North America to Israel. United said it'll resume flights from Newark to Tel Aviv next month, and it's the first U.S. carrier to do so since the Hamas attacks on southern Israel on October 7th. United said it, quote, conducted a detailed safety analysis in making this decision, including close work with security experts and government officials in the United States and Israel, unquote. The Israel Airports Authority confirmed that United will start resuming flights on March 3rd with a 787-10. The airline plans to add a second Newark to Tel Aviv flight in May. However, service from Washington, San Francisco, and Chicago are still being evaluated with a possibility of resumptions in the fall. Swiss, Lufthansa, Austrian, Aegean, Air France are among other airlines that have started flights to Tel Aviv.
1: That's great. I mean, that's a lot of work to be able to do that safely. And I think so. These airlines are already flying so, I think the American carriers are finally like, okay, it is safe enough for us to travel. And, you know, it's not, no one is going there for vacations. It's people are going there because they have there to travel, to see friends and family, for business stuff. So, I'm glad that, that that connection is opening again between the U.S. and Israel.
0: Yeah. Business doesn't stop just because there are conflicts. And the airlines wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't safe. And Israel and that whole area has always been somewhat of a hotbed for things there was drew there was a flight historically I, i'm sure they don't do it anymore emirates was flying an a340 into kabul in afghanistan uh-huh. oh, towards right. the end yeah, they of kept flying. towards the end of the the u.s campaign there. Yeah. there there was a daily a340 from dubai to kabul which is mind-blowing for people yeah you know
1: Airlines are about making money, but um, a lot of these are, connect- are critical connections between major cities, just getting goods and people back and forth. So I'm glad that that chain is back open. All right, Doug, that's great news. We've been talking about the new golden age of aviation with several aircraft projects like Boom Supersonic, the NASA Quest X-59 Quiet Supersonic Aircraft tests, and the TTBW. Here we go. The Transonic Trust Braced Wing. I think yes, I got it. got it. you know, got <laughs> it. You know, they, we need to talk to their marketing people. If avgeeks can't remember it, how do they expect anyone else to remember what TTBW means? Anyway, the TTBW X-66 efficient narrow-body aircraft. In addition to aircraft, we may also be embarking on a new golden age of airports. The Federal Aviation Administration is awarding $970 million from Biden's bipartisan Investing America agenda to 114 airports across the country. Now, I know that doesn't seem like a lot because... Just one terminal could be a billion dollars, and this is $970 for all these (laughs) airports around the country. But I will say, if there were some projects that were about to launch, this gives it that little boost to get it going, right? Here's some free money, use it. It's it's almost like seed money,
0: where Mm. if if the government gives you a few million dollars to, to do something with the airport... Right. then you can bring that to other investors and say look we we've got the seed money now maybe other investors can come in and a lot of these projects are public uh, ppp public, public private partnerships mm-hmm. where basically it's a government owned facility like an airport and then there are public entities who help fund it they issue bonds like lot, lots of different ways to do it but right. then the the private portion of that maybe gets a 15-, 20-, 30-year agreement or lease where they actually get some of the money back. They get revenues yeah. from sales, from tickets, from all of that. Mm-hmm. So there, there is an incentive then, but you need that seed money. You, you need to <laughs> be able to go to that private company and say, right. look, the government is starting this, and then that's where the money really starts to flow in.
1: Well, right, and then there's an incentive. Let's do this now so we have a couple million dollars where we would may not have it next year. Right. So it has that impetus. These awards are on top of the nearly two billion for airport terminals announced over the past two years. The vast majority of these uh, terminal proje- projects are under construction.
0: Here's some of the breakdown of that nine hundred seventy million. Thirty five million goes to Washington Dulles for the construction of a 14 gate, 400 square foot, 400,000 square foot terminal building, including connections to the aerotrain and the metro rail. $20 million to Salt Lake City International Airport for a Concourse B terminal expansion, which includes 16 gates, $10 million to Hector International Airport in Fargo. Shout out to <laughs> our friend Ryan. So I
1: kind of, I, I'm kind of biased. I picked out airports that... That we that have connections me, to. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: This is for rehabilitation and expansion of the existing terminal. Then $40 million to O'Hare for improvements to Terminal 3 to include increasing the central passenger corridor width reconfigured TSA checkpoint, new hold room, and updates to the baggage system. I'm going to pause right here. Mm -hmm. One thing I didn't talk about when I was in Denver two weeks ago for my sim, Denver has had his horrible, horrible, horrible security lines and Hmm. setup. Oh, yeah. Yes. They just opened a brand new upper-level security checkpoint. It Uh was fantastic. It was so easy. It was so fast. It's huge now. And it was just so, so efficient. So kudos to Denver. I know they've been working on that for years. Really, really good job. All right. Nice. Speaking of Denver, here we go 26.6 million for a baggage handling replacement system hopefully they can spend a little money and replace the broken trains too but i digress 5.4 million dollars to martin state airport in middle river maryland for a new air traffic control tower martin state that's your that's my airport can we, call and that, can we call that your home airport
1: that is my home airport of course dulles is where i work but my heart is at martin state airport you should put that on a t-shirt <laughs> A new tower for Martin State Airport. That's pretty good. That's that's a, that's a big investment.
0: $31 million for San Francisco International Airport to replace critical mechanical and electrical components of the HVAC system at the International Terminal. And then finally, $27 million to Charlotte Douglas International for the replacement of up to 16 passenger boarding bridges. Hopefully We're they'll really... put windows, windows yeah. on those <laughs> new bridges.
1: Maybe replace those E-gates. You know, that's, those are one of the most hated gates around the system, the Express E gates at Charlotte. I don't know if yeah, you, the ground I've level. Been. Yeah. <laughs> All the airports, it seems like they're sprucing up. And I remember Donald Trump, before he was president years ago, he like lambasted like LaGuardia Airport, yeah. you know, and the conditions compared to, Do- he mentioned Doha Airport, which is, which is fabulous. Check it out. LaGuardia Airport, I think looks as good as Doha Airport now with their improvements. So we, we are getting there.
0: Yeah, it definitely takes time. And I know that we have airports that are near and dear to our hearts. Denver is near and dear to my heart. I went to school out there. My parents live there. My wife is from there. In-laws live there. We go to Denver all the time. That's like a second home for us. To yeah. see the investment and the changes in the airport over the last five years, it went from kind of a crappy airport to it's really starting to improve. And it, it just, it takes time. It takes that critical mass and I'm, I'm going to go back to this seed money. It just takes yeah. a little bit of an investment to really start to, to move the ball. Is this going to be overnight for all these airports? No, th- these are probably 5, 10, 15-year plans and things, mm-hmm. and it's going to take a while. It's taken LaGuardia 10 years with all the construction that they've been doing to get to where you said it looks like Doha. It's going to take time. So if you're at some of these airports that are getting the money, don't expect to change overnight. They still have to get the contracts, a lot of work that has to go into it. In a way, I kind of agree with President Trump, because when I go to Hong Kong, when I go to Shanghai, when I go to some of these gorgeous international Mm -hmm. airports, it really is embarrassing how... Some of the airports in the U.S. are the antithesis. Have you flown into
1: Philadelphia of... Airport? It is embarrassing. And that is a gateway. That is an internet. So imagine going from Doha to Philadelphia. Yes. It, it's, it's like stuck in the 80s.
0: I lived in Philly for five years. That that was one of my home airports that's, quote, near and dear to my heart. And I hate it. <laughs> I hate Philadelphia Airport.
1: Well, we're always making fun of of ourselves at Washington Dulles because the terminal that we operate out of, It's a temporary terminal, which we've been using for 45 years. And they joked about this at the conference. One of our vice presidents joked about it. And we're like, ha, ha, ha. But, you know, we laugh at ourselves. But with this project, this is the start of the replacement for the C&D concourse, which is a joke. We may go from the worst facility as far as hubs for our airline to perhaps the best. So it could be a whole turnaround in the next five years. And that's just the start. That... It's 14 gates, but eventually it'll be about 40 gates in the new concourse as they build it out.
0: I know we talked about this a couple years ago. I remember when we were in Salt Lake City at the the brand new terminal there and how gorgeous it was. Oh my, yeah. And it, it it went from being like a Philadelphia to that gorgeous airport
1: well yeah and have you been to that new section of denver airport the new A-Gates? i have down
0: the a gates oh, and also the end of the b gates uh there's a brand new extension on the b gates too
1: doha airport employees how you like us now because it is actually nicer than doha airport some of these extensions at denver airport lots of glass great restaurants great facilities lounges so we are getting there so yeah i mean golden age of airports I think we're we're embarking on that as well as airplanes. Speaking of aircraft, let's get back to aircraft, Doug, for our main topic. This week, I asked you if flying the Pegasus tanker, which is a modified Boeing seven sixty seven, was similar to flying a Boeing triple seven for the airlines. You said it was. Quote unquote eerily similar. The 767 and the 777 do not have the same type rating, meaning if you are rated to fly one, you can fly the other. What are some, well, before we talk about the other aircraft, I just want to picture what you're picturing. So you're sitting on the Pegasus, a 767 200. How is your view different on the 777? It's not.
0: It is identical. Why is it the same type rating? To be honest, I really don't know. And part of it is Section 41. We've talked about mm-hmm. this quite a few times in the past, that the the flight deck portion of the 767 is the same flight deck portion of the 777. Yes, the 777 is much bigger, but they use the same nose portion, the, the whole flight deck portion. I could close my eyes and open them and be in a different, either a 777 or a KC-46 they are so close to being the same. Yesterday, Drew, what do you think my lading weight was? That one touch and go that I did.
1: I'm going to say 250,000 pounds.
0: Close. It was a little bit more than that. It was about two hundred eighty, two hundred
1: ninety thousand. 290,000 pounds. Is that fully laden with uh, fuel? Mm-mm.
0: No, our our max landing weight is three hundred ten thousand. So we we had burned down a little bit. I, I mean that we did have quite a bit of fuel. Yes, Drew. When I land a triple seven three hundred, it's close to six hundred thousand pounds. That twice is twice as much. This, twice as much, but it feels the same. The, really, the feel of the airplane, the weight of the airplane, all these new airplanes. You're not actually feeling the airplane. It's all just right. computers yes. that yeah. are making you. Making feel like you're controlling it. Putting yeah. forces on mm-hmm. it, making you feel like you feel the airplane. You feel your Cessna 172. You oh, actually yeah. physically feel it because mm-hmm. it's pulleys and cables. In all these brand new airplanes, or I say brand new, they're like 40 years old, but in, in the newer generations of airplanes, it's all load. It's all feel. It's all not real. It's a computer that's that's just giving you those aerodynamic aerodynamic forces. Right. They feel exactly the same, but yet the 777 300 is twice the size of the 767 200.
1: So you're saying when you when you maneuver a 777 or a 767 it feels the same. You don't it does. you don't actually feel the size of the plane at all. No. But what about on a 737? Does that feel different than a 767?
0: It does, much different. And even the 737s, between the the different variants, the 700 feels so much different than the 900ER. The Max 8 feels so much different than a 737-800. The range of feel on the 737s is just Uh so great compared to the 777 or the 767.
1: Let me ask you a question. The 737-800... Uh, that's the NG Next Generation versus the 737 Max nine. Should those possibly? I mean, are they different enough that they could conceivably be different type ratings? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I don't know if we want to include. Should we? To be honest, <laughs> yes, I think so because they're they're different enough. Hmm. Well, and right now, I mean, I'm 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 skipping ahead, but right now, Boeing is. It's not an easy task for Boeing to maintain the same type rating for a 737-10 to the rest of the 737 family. And I'm even hearing the new 777X. That's a challenge for Boeing to assure the FAA that this is the same type rating as the one that you fly, the 777-300 because it's so different in terms of systems.
0: Let's talk about these other airplanes that have the same type rating, and then we can get back into the discussion. The 757 and 767 have the same rating, even though one is a narrow body and the other is a wide body. 777 and the 787 are slightly more complicated. These, again, share much in common with the 787 using many of the 777 designs, just a little bit newer, but they only share the same type rating in the EU. In the U.S., the FAA considers them as different types. The whole Airbus A320 family has the same rating, and then the A330 and A350 share the same type rating, as well as the A340. I looked this up. Oh, Uh, really? Okay. Not in the U.S., in in other places around the world, the 330 Mm -hmm. and the 340 share the same type rating. rating. One thing I do want to say, though, is just because there is a like type rating doesn't mean that every airline operates that way. For instance, the 767-400... At Delta, they have a completely separate pilot group. The 767 400 pilots only fly the 400. They don't fly the 757 or the 767 300. Whereas at United, the 400 pilots fly all of them. A 757, 767 pilot could fly anything from a 757-200 all the way up to a 767-400. That is, I mean, that's,
1: that's great as far as crew scheduling, but I think you were saying they're vastly different aircraft, a 757-200 to a 767-400. I sent so you I guess, flight
0: tech photos of, of the yes, two between, so different. A, between a 757-200 and a 767-400. They don't so I look guess, anything alike.
1: Right, so good job by these airlines convincing the FAA, because the airlines want that. They want commonality so you can... If we change planes from a 757-200 to a 767-400, because that's the only thing we have left that can get people to Dublin, I know that the pilots can fly both, which is awesome. But for the pilots themselves, that's not a quick change. I think we had Stephen who uh, flew the 757 and he said it's so different that it's crazy Mm -hmm. that it's the same type rating. Yeah, but pilots are smart. They're, they can adjust easily. And you got, all you guys are doing are going into the flight management system and just typing in D-U-B, right? And then everything else is... And you just press watch. enter,
0: and it just takes <laughs> care of itself. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know it's a lot of work. This common type rating is critical. To airline crew scheduling one other interesting type rating which you told me about which i didn't believe i could not believe it etihad and emirates this isn't just in the last month they were able to achieve regulatory approval allowing their pilots to fly both the a350 a twin engine wide body and the a380 a double deck four engine wide body so different they look nothing like each other the approval will allow crews to fly both types within the company interchangeably. Have you been in the flight decks of both of those aircraft? And if you have, are they basically the same? I'm, I'm thinking they are.
0: I have not in the A380. I've been in the 350. I'm going to point out one thing that you just said. They don't look anything alike. That's on the outside. Again, right. this the, the 767-200 and the 777-300 don't really look anything alike. Yes, they look a little bit closer than an A380 compared to an A350, It's not about what they look like on the outside. It's about what is in the flight deck, but more importantly, how it feels when you're flying. I know that a lot of people will bring up, well, the A380 is a four-engine airplane and the A350 is a two-engine airplane. That doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. Because as long as the procedures are the same, even if you lose an engine, as long as the feel of the airplane and the procedures of what you do are the same, that's how they're able to get these common type ratings. And Airbus has been way ahead of Boeing in pushing Mm. for all of these common type ratings. The training at Airbus or on Airbus airplanes to go between one airplane and another, say if you want to go from an A320 to an A350, the training program is only half of what it is on Boeing airplanes to go from one Boeing airplane to another. Yeah, Because Airbus has really been pushing this commonality.
1: Now, Doug, I don't think they were successful. Do you remember several episodes ago, like maybe two years ago, we were talking about Qantas trying to get the same type rating for their A320s, I believe, and their mm-hmm. A330s? Yeah. And I don't think they were able to get that because I, I have not been able to find that they were successful. So if anyone yeah, knows...
0: I haven't, I haven't heard anything, but I, I know that that's, that's ultimately the manufacturer's goal. And of course, mm-hmm. like you said, the airlines too, because it, it makes scheduling much easier.
1: Yeah. Well, I want, to, I want to ask you, so you said it doesn't matter what the plane looks like on the outside, right? It matters if the systems are similar in the flight deck. But honestly, though, if you are on a Pegasus that has a wingspan of what may be under 200 feet, and you're on a 777-300 with a wingspan of over 200 feet, you have to be aware of the size of the airplane when you're taxiing. So it's not, I know it's the same, pretty much the same inside, but you have to be aware. It doesn't. Isn't there any training to make you aware of how to taxi to, you know, to make sure you have clearance?
0: Let's skip the Pegasus and, and just stay within the triple seven family. The two hundred and the three hundred are vastly different when it comes to not wingspan necessarily, but length. And it would be really easy to get in a triple seven three hundred and just think, oh, I'm in a two hundred. I can just taxi a little bit differently than I I would otherwise. And you can see where you could really start to get in trouble. But that's where you you have to slow things down and think about, okay, what am I in today? All right, I'm in a 300. Mm -hmm. Okay, that means I need to take wider turns because it's a longer airplane. Mm -hmm. I don't want one of my mains to go in the mud. You just have to slow things down and think a little bit more methodically. But once you do it enough, it really isn't that different. And when I was flying the 737, I would have some days where I went from a 700 to a 900. Those are vastly different airplanes. Yeah. And you're flying both of those in the same day.
1: True. Okay. So on the 777-300, you have those cameras to help you, right? Do you have, like, main, main gear cameras so you can kind of see where the grass is? I, I, I don't know what those cameras we do. are for. On,
0: on the, yeah, on the 300, it's, it, it is for centerline control. And also, when you're taking a turn just to make sure that your mains are not going to hit lights or go into the grass or through the mud or anything like that.
1: So when you're taking off on 2.8 left, you're taking off on 2.8 left and you're turning onto the runway, is it noticeably different, like how far out you have to go before making Mm -hmm. the turn?
0: It it is because it's several dozen feet farther from that turning the moment arm of the airplane. If you think about like that that center of the airplane where it pivots around as you're turning, the length of the body is several dozen feet longer from nose to tail on the 300 compared to the 200, which then means that the flight deck, we'd sit probably 12 or 15 feet farther in front of where we would be on the 777-200. It, it definitely is noticeably different when taxiing.
1: Wow. All right. So we could go on and on about this, but uh, the listeners may... may We'll be tuning out shortly, I'm sure, and changing to my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> All right, so what do you have planned this week? Uh, any other flying this week? Uh, I'll talk about it when I get back. Okay. And then for me, I was planning on flying today. looks like I'll be sitting at home. It'll be a chance for me to continue studying uh, Cessna 172 pre-flight, which, you know, it's not the flying part. The flying part is a piece of cake. I love it. But that, those checklists for the startup, I've done it like so many times, but I feel like it's always the first time. <laughs> So I think I'm just going to sit here and watch YouTube videos of the Cessna startup process.
0: If it makes you feel any better, I had my handwritten notes yesterday for the pre-flight and all all through engine start on the 46 because I do it so infrequently that I even, and I'm qualified on the airplane, I still Mm. needed my handwritten notes to be able to do it.
1: So once you get comfortable with it, you just do it without a checklist, right? You don't have a physical checklist eventually. We do well. You oh,
0: do. okay. Actually, for certain things, our our pre flight flow or scan—you can call it one of two things—we call it flows in the airline. Yeah. Our pre flight flow is not a checklist. It's in the book, it, but it is required to be memorized. You you have to know where the switches go. But then from that point on, anything that's critical, any critical switch is actually part of a checklist. It's a a do. You do it, and then you read it, and you clean it up with the checklist. But the checklist is there to catch any critical switches that need to be in a certain position.
1: Yeah, where I'd like to get to is where I do it, and then I check the checklist as confirmation. Mm -hmm. But maybe tomorrow, Doug, I have another flight scheduled tomorrow. The weather looks good. I think today um, I have to call him to see why it's canceled, but he said it's the weather, and it looks cloudy. It's probably going to rain, probably low clouds. 2500 is uh, the ceiling height for me for VFR, which is visual flight rules. So, if the cloud, if the ceiling is less than that, uh, for VFR, I'm not qualified, I can't fly if the clouds are less than that. And it looks like it might be. That might be the reason.
0: Do you know why it's 2500? No. VFR, you need 500 feet clear of clouds, you need to be at least 500 feet below the clouds. And uh-huh. there's minimums that you can fly above the ground when you're outside of airport airspace because they don't want someone just buzzing above neighborhoods at 500 <laughs> right. feet or a thousand feet.
1: I mean, I have basically I have TCAS on my Cessna 172 G1000 cockpit, and it'll say terrain, terrain. So I don't, I don't see what the problem is. Mm-mm. But I guess. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, um, thanks for bearing with us as we uh, just have random airplane talk at the, at the end of our episode. To our friends and contributors, this podcast is your show, so go on our website, nextripnetwork.com. Let us know what's on your mind so we can talk about it or give us your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at Next Trip Podcast. Please tell your friends about... Oh, we're also on Threads now, so you can also follow us on Threads at Next Trip Podcast. Tell your friends about us so we can reach more people who love aviation and travel.
0: You can also call our Google voice number to ask a question or just rant about something. The number is 872-529-5620 when calling from the U.S. If you're calling from outside the U.S., use country code 001 or plus one. Thanks to all of our friends and contributors for your support and for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, stay aviation tough.
1: This has been the Next Trip Podcast. I may need a moment to just like go pound, you know, a pillow or something.
0: This is ridiculous. Yeah. Sorry. Here, tell you what, oh. I'll have a I'll have a drink
1: for you. It's coffee, <laughs> but I'll I'll have a drink for you. Oh man. Alright, sorry.